You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove, and I'm joined by two other guests this morning. We have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale, and we have the uh, wonderful Howard Quatch here with us as well. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Morning. A lot going on here this morning, and uh, so we may be interrupted with some things going on here uh, during the recording. We'll see what happens, but uh, we do have the funeral here uh, at the church this morning for Jordan Pulaski, and Charlie will be doing that. And so, Charlie, we're just grateful that you're still here with us in your suit and uh, ready to get going as soon as this podcast is over. And uh, yeah, so really glad you're here with us and uh, continue to be praying for the Pulaski family. Uh, So we'll do a quick bonus round question here, as always. Uh, We're in the Advent season, and our church has been doing, trying to do some unique things for Advent, trying to get people uh, doing some devotional and readings together and lighting the candles together. And so just question for you guys, question for all of us, um, what practices do you do with your family during Advent that might be, you know, different from the rest of the year? Um, And uh, is there anything new that you're doing? this year that you haven't done before. So Howard, we'll start with you. You have two young kids at home, so. Yeah, yeah so they are they are very brief. Um, in the mornings we do uh, light the appropriate number of candles and with this little this little poem, short little four-liner poem, which I forget what it is. And then uh, we do the reading from the Prepare Him Room book that's been distributed to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do the scripture reading there. And then if, depending on the girl's attention span, which is very little, we'll determine whether or not we'll read the picture it section. Um, and then we sing uh, one of the, I guess, carols, you call them? We call mm-hmm. them? We sing one of the carols. Okay. We, meaning Sarah, and I try to follow her lead, and the girls are probably playing with the little nativity scene, yeah. putting the little dolls in their mouths. <laughs> very yeah, brief. That sounds, that sounds familiar, some of that. Uh, Charlie, how about you? I just encourage you guys to enjoy this time while your your kids are young and they're together. I mean, I've got my daughters. One of them is not with us at the moment. She'll she's flying flying in today, and uh, it just seems you know when the kids get older, they're my daughter's playing basketball, and my other son often works late. So if we can all eat supper together, which is an accomplishment, um, then you know during the Advent season we'll try to do a reading of some sort. I've been trying to use this devotional book. I'm not going to say who the author is because it's been pretty disappointing. It's not the one we're doing as a church because my kids are older, but I picked more of an adult devotional and it's the kids kind of glaze over as I'm reading it. So some of our best discussions have been when I've abandoned ship and just, well, forget the devotional book and just, uh, you know, talk to them. I have personally been enjoying um, Handel's Messiah. Mm -hmm. I just... I'm amazed how much I didn't like classical music when I was younger and how I just appreciate the that is timeless and it's just the glory is revealed and uh, it's beautiful. So those are a couple of things. Yeah. I to my shame, I have to say like I've never listened to the Handel's Messiah like all the way through and I don't really know much about it and uh I probably should, but um yeah, uh maybe when I We'll see. I just don't feel like I have the time to sit and listen to to classical music like that. But uh, yeah, I can relate a lot to uh, I guess Howard, uh, where his family's at. You know, with uh, 
almost three-year-old and 10-month-old at home. So we do ours in the evening at dinner. So we try to, well, we also try to do some of the activities from the, um, devote the prepare him room devotional that the church is doing. Uh, and so we follow along with that more during the day when we have time. And then, uh, with, we have a little advent calendar with its own, um, uh, you know, scripture readings and stuff. And it's the littlest watchman, uh, which has a storybook that goes along with it too. And the advent calendar is okay. The devotionals are okay. It's basically a biblical theology. Like it starts off with kind of, uh, a, the Jesse tree theme and, you know, that this, uh, the stump of Jesse and, and all of that, but then it kind of just goes into a very standard biblical theology of, you know, first we look at, you know, Adam and Eve, then Abraham, you know, uh, now we just did Ruth last night and, you know, uh, all of that. So it's, it's good, at, but, but we just make it very, very quick and Felix just kind of follows along best he can. We're also singing, we do one new song a week and try and just really emphasize that song. Right. So the first week we did Silent Night and now we're doing um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I don't know what we're going to do for week three yet, but Felix is old enough that he is starting to, he gets the words. And so if it comes on when we have Christmas music in the background and Silent Night or O Come, O Come, Emmanuel comes on, he starts singing what he knows. Yeah. And that's really, really that's cool. cool to see. That's like, it's just really, really cool. Um, so that's been uh, neat. So, all right. Well, today we're talking about Mark chapter 14, which uh, really is, uh, you know, we're getting to the end of the story. And uh, so we're going to be looking at a few passages here and we're just going to jump right into the first, um, this first scene of Mark chapter 14, which begins this, what we call the passion narrative, which is Christ's, um, you know, his arrest, well, the betrayal, arrest, uh, his suffering and his crucifixion, we all consider the passion narrative. And the beginning of this passion narrative, we learn uh, that it's it's starting, you know, a couple days before Passover. And uh, we have him, he's in this, uh, what's the name of the, uh, I in lost the, it. The house? Uh, well, where's, where's, the, where's the house located? It's in uh, Bethany. In Bethany, yeah. So he's in Bethany and at this house uh, reclining with Simon the leper. And this woman comes uh, and breaks this you know, alabaster jar. Uh, so that's kind of the, the way this all sets up. And so I'm going to ask you guys, uh, why is this woman criticized? So the disciples criticize her for her action, but Jesus calls it beautiful. So why, why are the disciples so indignant and why does Jesus call it beautiful? Who wants to take a stab at that? Yeah, uh, I think. Well, it's because the the oil was precious, um, and that uh, and that act, caring for the poor is an, a very important thing, and especially during like the religious festivals. Like during that time, um, they would there are efforts to give to the poor. It is considered like a good work. Yeah. Um, and so that opportunity cost is true. And according to Mark, it was a year's worth of wages at 300 denarii. And we learned before that 200 denarii could feed 5,000 people, right? So um, you could serve a lot of, do a lot of good with that, um, that amount of money, assuming you could sell it um, for that. So that's, it. if, caring for the poor was really the intentions of the people who said it in that scene, then yeah, 
um, that is a true statement. Yeah. Charlie. Yeah. I mean, the gospel of John tells us, I mean, John just says, uh, you know, why Judas is, says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And this is really a great lesson about hypocrisy and self-righteousness that here it's a way that, that here this woman's being put down. It's really a subtle form of, you might even say, emotional abuse, mm-hmm. that she's being treated like crud and made to feel terrible when she does this really honorable and precious thing. And he's making it, cloaking it in the in the in the form of like, hey, I, this should be going to the poor. And really, and the reality is, in his heart of hearts, he's a thief. He cares nothing about the poor. He's full of, of greed, and he wants the money himself. And the next, later in the Mark and Sandwich, mm-hmm. he's going to be going collecting the coins uh, to betray Jesus. And uh, so, really, in this chapter, I remember reading this just a while back and thinking, this is really such a sad chapter. Like, mm-hmm. in the life of Jesus, like, everybody is turning away. Judas is going to fail him. Peter's going to fail him. Mm-hmm. The disciples are going to fail him. You know, he's on trial. Nobody's coming to his defense. And then at the end, he's going to see Peter deny him. Really, the only commendable person that I can think of in this chapter that's beautiful is an unnamed woman. Mm -hmm. We don't even know her name. We're just told that what she did was beautiful of this offering. Yeah, you you mentioned, um, you know, Charlie, I I was thinking about this in preparation. Uh, You mentioned um, how John, you know, names Judas specifically, but Mark doesn't. And it really seems to make it more of like a group thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe not all of the group, but a group thought. And I just wonder, like, um, is there could we could we try and put our finger on a reason why Mark doesn't name Judas? Like, is there a shame over Judas? Is there, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Like, why why wouldn't he just call out Judas specifically here when he's about to, um, you know, Judas obviously gets the spotlight here as betraying Jesus. So it's just, um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, probably one of those rhetorical, like the way Mark writes or maybe, yeah, or maybe it's the realization that in this moment, Judas wasn't the only one having that thought. Yeah. Mm. You know? I think it was one of these things where the group dynamics is here's Judas's influential person. Mark may not remember who exactly said it, who initially said it. And everybody kind of got on board like, yeah, why? You know, hey, yeah, given to the poor. Yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah. What is this woman doing? Yeah. And they kind of all get on board. But I think John was privy to, and you read John's account, he's directly um, across or next to Jesus. And the way that the scenario is laid out, he knows specifically who's going to dip in the dish, who's going to deny him, because he's leaning over to Jesus, and Jesus is saying the one, you know, so John knows exactly what's going on. He's got more insight as the closest to Jesus. So maybe he just remembers, oh, yeah, this this was Judas too. Yeah. And Mark didn't. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I um, forgot to uh, mention before we jumped into this woman was just 
the way this chapter starts off uh, queuing us into the Passover and kind of the timeline now. And one thing that I didn't really realize, um, uh, but a couple commentators pointed this out, uh, is that the synoptic gospel gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, this is where they agree most in their order of events and the details, uh, you know, the details are rearranged and spoken differently and highlight different things kind of throughout the gospels. But when you get to this account, the passion narrative, it's where they start to align, um, the most. And, uh, so I think, you know, Mark cueing us into what's about to happen, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, uh, so then why, why they protect this narrative more like they don't alter it to fit there. I mean, Mark clearly does it. He does the sandwich technique and stuff here uh, as well, but you kind of have this accepted uh, passion narrative um, that uh, was probably well known when it, by the time it got put to paper. Um, uh, and then you have the religious leaders as part of that who say, you know, now during the Passover, uh, let's let's not do this now during the feast so we don't cause an uproar. And mm-hmm. so you have, again, the religious leaders who should be mm-hmm. the ones most on the inside uh, and should be following Jesus because they know the most are the ones saying, no, not now. Like, let's we got to be secret about this because we don't want to cause an uproar. And then immediately after that, right, in verse three, you have Jesus is in Bethany on the outside with Simon the leper on the outside with this unnamed woman from the outside. And you just have this, again, the insider outsider Mm. contrast Mm. and this beautiful display. I mean, Simon the leper should have some props for hosting Jesus, but we don't find out too much about him. Mm. But then this woman comes and it's just another one of these, you know, Mark really just throw in that insider outsider, you know, motif in our face. Uh, And the, beautiful display of devotion doesn't come from um, the religious leaders, doesn't even come from the disciples, which is, I think, probably one of the reasons why they're indignant is because why did we think of this first? You know, this woman is kind of shaming us in her devotion to to Jesus, right? To the one who we say is the Lord. And so I think they're probably a little bit of ashamed that they didn't don't have something like this to offer. And so they want to shame her. Uh, out of that. And uh, yeah, it's really just this great kind of great contrast. And I think some people get hung up on, you know, Jesus's response of, you know, you will always have the poor with you kind of thing. Uh, So she did a beautiful thing because you won't always have me with you. And I think some people get caught up, hung up on that as if Jesus is downplaying the need to serve the poor. But clearly that's not what's going on because he's all about ministering to the poor if you look at the rest. But he is unashamedly here saying, I'm, I'm the priority, right? Like he's not being pretentious about it. He's just, that's what it is what it is. Like I'm leaving soon, you know, and she's worshiping me. Um, so I don't know. You guys have any thoughts on kind of that piece of it before we move on? It was a costly gift. I mean, very expensive. And that makes it all the more beautiful because she's, the sacrifice of what she's putting out. This is a huge, huge gift that she's giving, but um, Jesus is worthy of it. Yeah. I wonder if um, you always have, you will always have the poor is um, definitely like a priorities thing, but then I wonder if it's also maybe a rebuke, like, like you, you always have the poor with you as it also implying 
why haven't you mm-hmm. already have, have why haven't you been taking care of the poor yeah right Ex- yeah. again exposing that kind of like hypocrisy like the woman uh like the widow in the temple kind of thing yeah so, yeah. yeah i've sometimes heard that verse uh used to justify uh like in the political realm uh a like let's not get too serious about social policy for the poor because no matter what we do jesus says you'll always have the poor with you so almost kind of like trying to downplay and it's like guys that's not what jesus is getting at here at all. he's not talking about social policy at all he's getting to our hearts you know and charlie you mentioned the value of this gift uh, another thought that popped in my head is the value of the gift signifies the the value of the one who the gift is being given to right so the fact that she would you know the and this she probably does not work wages uh to to be able to buy something like this herself so it's probably an heirloom or something that's been passed down to her an inheritance so it's of tremendous value to her she sacrifices it to give to him and the reality is he's about to go sacrifice himself mm. as a gift for her right and so there's this sort of like yes she's giving uh, this tremendous gift to him but why is he saying that you don't always have you're not always going to have me with you because he's about to give himself as a gift good. for her and all those who so it kind of reverses of what's her value right if he's willing to give himself uh for her and yeah. so i think that's a really that's good beautiful that'll preach man yeah well, <laughs> well if you want to go through mark next i have a good sermon that i uh, well, you know i guess that's why mark says she'll be included in the proclamation of the gospel yeah. um where she in verse uh three broke um uh, broke the flask and poured it over his head and then later on at the institution of the lord's supper this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many both very precious yeah well, let's talk a little bit more about Judas. So uh, Judas and Peter are definitely haunting examples for believers to check themselves. And so we're going to kind of do this with with both Judas and Peter, kind of ask some similar questions here. But let's look at Judas first. Uh, we Some details about Judas happen a, a couple times here, some verses 10 to 12, uh, which say, uh, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. This is right after the um, woman in Bethany. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And then again, in verse uh, 20 and 21, Jesus said to them uh, about the one who will betray him. He says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. But the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Uh, so Jude, there's some really chilling words here for about Judas and for us to consider. So two questions, in what ways are we all like Judas? And then in what ways is a genuine Christian unlike Judas? So in what ways are we all like Judas? And then in what ways is a genuine Christian unlike Judas? Either of you guys want to start with that yeah howard's point yeah you take that one <laughs> <laughs> um you know i'm thinking of the the creed that says if we remain or if we're faithless he remains faithful but if we disown him he'll disown us and so a true believer we all struggle with sin and we've all done some 
dirty, rotten things that we feel shame and guilt and sorrow and and hopefully not just because we got caught, but because we genuinely feel terrible that we've grieved the Lord of glory. And so in that sense, we're all like Judas and that Judas, um, his idolatry seems to be that he loved money. And we're Americans. We love money more than we, we think we do. And um, so we can be greedy and not want to help and to use money for our own selfish purposes. But to use the money, I mean, the thing with Jesus is he had it had to be done at night. And in John's account, it says, and he went out and it was night. <laughs> and it's just this powerful imagery of the deeds of darkness. And it had to be done at night because every all the crowds loved Jesus. They were they wouldn't have allowed this to happen. So it needed to be done under the cloak of darkness and the cut in the in the deep dark of night. And then where is Jesus at night? Nobody's going to be able to find him. Well, oh my goodness, one of the twelve himself has come to us and has agreed to do the deed and to do it with a kiss. And it's just such a treacherous. Uh, awful betrayal that I'm thinking this is a just an outright disowning uh, of Jesus here I uh for for trying to answer that question I'm uh, the word expectations come to mind Uh, being one of the being one of the 12 you know specifically called out by Jesus to follow him and then um, through the gospel account of Mark you know, we like I imagine him like everyone else witnessing all the power the authority um the ability to feed thousands of people and this like the expectations of a nation uh for someone to deliver them from like dated like from a foreign rule that affects their day to day and then and then doing this, and then doing this, like, I don't know, maybe from his perspective, some kind of 180. I wonder if he felt betrayed, mm. if Judas felt betrayed, because his expectations were probably some kind of powerful mm. Daniel 7 kind of son of man or mm. son of specific son of man, because he's pointed to himself, like called himself Jesus mm. as a son of man. And so if Daniel 7 and Old Testament prophecies were functioning, I can sympathize mm. that when I see this person who I've been following, given up my whole life to follow, conf- like directly confront the authorities of our religion, um, like yeah, like I need I need to do something about it, mm. right? I need to I need to betrayal is is of course um, what is it? I see you the word. Betray according to the Gospel of Mark. That's post post resurrection. But in that moment, right? Like I can imagine myself saying, "I need like I need to do something right. I need mm. to correct this." Like because there were other self proclaimed messiahs during that time too, right? Who ended up crucified? Who ended up not rising from the dead? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate everything you just said, Howard. Kind of you just added a human element to Judas there that I, I appreciated. 
Um, because yeah, like what are your expectations that, and I think there are many Christians who have a certain expectation of, okay, if I give myself to the Lord, I give my life to the Lord, like this is what he's going to do for mm-hmm. me. And when that expectation gets shattered, um, there's, they, they leave the faith. Um, and it really, really comes down to what your expectation was that God was going to do for you. So that was, that was a good word, Howard. Um, I, I think another way that we are all in a way like Jesus is we all, and, and I think Charlie kind of hinted at this too, was we all shrink back from what the Lord calls us to, you know, and maybe not outright betrayal, but we all shrink back. But in a way, uh, too, uh, Judas is a, it's an, he's an extreme, but he's a prototype really of the rest of the disciples. Mm-hmm. Uh, because by the time this goes to its conclusion, um, some will shrink back from weakness. Some some will shrink back from fear. Uh, some from being a coward. And so this whole idea of, you know, surely not I. You know, I won't. I won't abandon you, Lord. Like we all kind of say that, and then when push comes to shove, yeah, we we shrink back. Uh, and so I think there's that strain uh, of weakness of whatever you want to call it going through um, all all of us. All of us. I wonder too, if perhaps, and this is perhaps speculative, I'm sure it is, <laughs> is that Judas was like forcing the fight. You know, like they, they're longing for this Messiah to be a political savior, mm-hmm. and he'd been hearing about Jesus, and and you know, and he's like, you know what, we need to make this happen. We need to get this on. And I remember as a kid, um, I, we we watched my my uh grandparents dog and this dog was just crazy and it was the same kind of dog as our dog they're both welsh terriers and i really wanted my dog to take this dog out and so i was in the garage with the two dogs and i forced the fight and i felt terrible about it afterwards but i actually pushed my dog into the other dog mm-hmm. and when they got into the fight the one of the dogs bit my finger. And so it was me that had forced the fight and then I lied about it. And this has never come to light till now, but, and I was the one who ended up getting bit because of this, you know? And I just felt horrible that I had like caused this, but I really wanted my dog to take this other dog Mm -hmm. out because I didn't like the other dog. And I wonder, could it have been with Judas that he wanted, that he, that he was like putting the Lord your God to the test. Like, mm. let's force the action. And there is a sinful part of us that wants to force God's hand. Mm. And perhaps that's part of Judas's sin here. Mm. Yeah. Um, one more similarity, uh, much more abstract maybe, but uh, like Judas, we are all fully responsible moral agents. And I think that's important because... Mm. Uh, you know, John says Satan entered into him. And so, you know, you might want to cast this all on Satan manipulating. No, that's not that's not the way Mark portrays it for sure. Uh, but to whatever extent Satan was involved in this, Judas is fully responsible for his actions. Yeah. And we are too, right? So in that way, we are like Judas because we are all responsible um, moral agents. So, okay, flip the script. In what way then, uh, praise be to God, uh, when we become Christians, uh, um, 
the spirit enters into our hearts and renews our will and our hearts and our loves and all of that. And so then in what ways is every genuine Christian unlike Judas? Okay, we know some similarities, but what? But in what way is every genuine Christian unlike Judas? Howard's given me a, he's like, I don't know. What's the good answer? Uh, yeah, uh, that we won't betray Jesus, but Lord have mercy, we'll end up being like the other disciples who may fall away and yet the Lord restores them. Yeah. Uh, sounds kind of abstract. Yeah. Well, Judas um, Judas took that opportunity to be restored away from himself. Mm. That's the sad reality for Judas. Yeah. Is he never had it. He never had an opportunity to be restored because his guilt and his shame consumed him. Um, so I, I think what you said is not really that abstract, right? Is that when the spirit works in our lives, um, and if we do fall into sin, the spirit will then give us opportunity to be restored, right. you know, and, uh, yeah, Charlie, any thoughts? I was just sticking to what I was saying earlier. You know, if we disown him, he'll disown us. And it's like the idea that Judas was never, never truly with the Lord. Um, so, you know, God remains faithful when we're faithless, but if we just flat out disown him, um, you know, it's a scary thing. I mean, there, there, there is some mystery here as to mm. how could this be one of the 12? And, and I think the answer is he was uh, a, a professor, but not a possessor. And he professed, you know, to be one of the 12, but he was never in his heart of hearts a true follower of Jesus. Yeah. Well, yeah, and John says that, right? Um in, mm-hmm. in his first letter, uh, you know, they, they were uh, of us, but they went out from us. Or the, so they show they were not of us kind of idea. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a little bit abstract to think of this, but uh, any genuine Christian. Now, some professors who then uh, deny Jesus end up becoming possessors through that, right? They realize that they were never uh, Christians. And so the way the Lord works in our lives is different and mysterious. Um, but yeah, I think we could say, again, it's a little bit abstract, but um, every Christian has the spirit of God working in them to restrain evil and uh, to work out holiness in their lives. And uh, so while like Judas, we are responsible moral agents, we have been renewed and freed to make righteous, holy choices. Um, and uh, yeah, and if the spirit of God is working in us, we're not going to deny and betray at least to the extent that judas did because uh, we will be preserved and kept and I mean, persevere it, i mean it is interesting that when I'm, I'm quoting this passage from second timothy about if we deny him or disown him and, and peter did that you yeah. know he did deny him or that's in this chapter and yet he repented yeah um, yeah well let's move on to looking at uh, the institution of the lord's supper which Jesus is doing during the uh, Passover meal. Um, what uh, Do you all see any connections? Well, there's many connections, obviously, between Jesus and the Passover and, you know, uh, Passover lamb and, and all of that. Um, but are there, do you all see any parallels between the institution of the Lord's Supper and the Passover? Do you see any parallels there? Institution between 
the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal itself. Howard. Oh, yeah. The first, uh, the the Passover meal itself uh, was pretty elaborate, like a long, like, Mm -hmm. liturgical feast. Um, And so... They're probably doing that in in that context. Um, typically, it was the head of the household uh, mm-hmm. doing the blessing after after recounting the whole story of um, of the deliverance of of Exodus, and the, the purpose of that is not just to like tell a great story, but it's to reappropriate that story for the family for the nation. Right now, we were delivered. Um, and then that, and then um, the head of household, in this case Jesus, would then say the blessing. Mark doesn't tell us what that blessing was. He would, um, the head of household would bless both the bread and the cup of wine, mm-hmm. and um, and so the similarity is um, that the, el- the t- what's most explicit are the two elements that are used: bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the blessing did a little. Did a little research here. <laughs> so so neat to just get a little bit more of the historical cultural context there. Uh, the blessing for the bread was, "Blessed be you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth." Mm-hmm. Right, and then and then after blessing the bread, he would break it. And the point of doing that um, was to distribute not just bread but the blessing mm-hmm. that would get mediated you know, to the people, right? Mm-hmm. And then drinking the cup is, wow, this is really, really powerful, right? Drinking the cup was to was to commune with that person and so that whatever the destiny is of that of the person or the people, we're all we're all in it together. And of course there's a little twist that Jesus adds. Maybe we can talk about that but the similarities are the elements well what's the yeah. twist yeah what's the twist we're on our that's edge it. of our yeah. seat that's that's Keep a, going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well the the twist is that he says this is my body right that 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 the blessing that the head of household is distributing right unlike feeding the four and five thousand yeah. the blessing of a filled stomach after yeah. multiple days which is a huge blessing right we I'm sure m- many of us have experienced others or yourself being hangry. Um, so the blessing of being having your tummy satisfied, but then it's not merely that now, but that somehow we don't know yet at this point in the story yeah. that Jesus's blood, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus's body is going to be a blessing broken. Yeah. And distributed to meet yeah. in some sort of blessing. And so this yeah. head of the the head of the household would always be telling the story, pointing backwards and pointing to something mm-hmm. other. You know, this is something that happened way back and and referring to the blood, and that when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague shall befall you, um, befell you, or fall upon you. Um, and so here the head of the house is Jesus, and he this big personal pronoun is this is my blood of the covenant and he's saying all of that pointer we're not pointing back anymore we're pointing right here it's Mm. all come to to me yeah this is my blood of the covenant 
and he's you know he's holding up this this cup but that he's pointing to the reality is himself and that he he is what this he is the passover lamb and um so it's huge it's it's the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of our sins of which blood of bulls and goats could never do can can you guys um i would love to have you guys help me out here um for the long up until what yesterday or whenever i did like my little research here uh verse 20 verse 25 um jesus says truly i say to you i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when i drink it in when i drink it new in the kingdom of god so uh not so much the last part but uh, but when he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, like I never really understood that other than just, okay, he's not going to drink, um, was it, is he not going to do Passover again? Like all these questions that I wasn't, um, I'm just not super sure about. But then after reading um, about the blessing during the Passover meal mm-hmm. for the for the cup, the blessing is, blessed are you, God, oh God, spirit of the universe or spirit of the world, who or king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Hmm. So there, like, it just seems like there is some kind of, it is very Jewish, this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you guys can help me out with that clause, um, that'll be great. I have no profound thoughts on that. As Scott would say, <laughs> I cede my time to the moderator. <laughs> I am the moderator. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I think you brought it out, Howard. Was what you just yeah. you brought it out that that in the very prayer of the in what was to be said, it was to give thanks to the one who provided the fruit of the vine. And here Jesus is saying, "I'm not going to drink it again until he's referring to this, pointing to the great consummation and when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and the great." marriage supper of the lamb and we'll have this great feast and he will we will participate again in in this uh mm. wonderful wine mm. yeah that was how that was all really good that was like very meditative i want you to record everything you just said you know it's to listen to you have a great radio voice by the way i don't know <laughs> anyone's ever told you that um why thank you <laughs> um by the way, I try to give us all a good radio voice in in uh, the post, uh, you know, effects. There's a, I had a little, <laughs> had a little bass and smoothness. You gotta to everybody. do some stuff with mine, cause yeah. man, it does not. It is whiny and high. Now the the effects are help us all. Um, yeah, I was thinking about Howard, uh, you know, and some of my study looking at the um, looking at the blessing, yeah, and and stuff. And one thought that I don't know that if this is too. Uh, too much allegory or putting too much into it. But if you're thinking about when this is happening in the meal and, you know, you have the bread and he says this blessing, you know, blessed art thou or Lord our God, king of the world who brings forth bread from the earth. And he breaks it and says like, this is me is, is there like a double meaning there of not only like the bread being broken, like my body being broken for you, but that he is the bread from the earth in the sense of his resurrection you know, I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know, but it, it, 
the double meaning there, like the the really powerful thing is then he, the bread metaphor can go both ways. And in John, he's the bread from heaven, mm. you know the and so in his incarnation, you know the bread that we feed on comes from heaven. But then in his resurrection, he's the bread from the earth, which brings blessing to the world. And <laughs> I don't know if it's that profound or not, Howard. I don't know if that's reading too much into it, but that is like, it could be kind of this double wave of meaning there, I guess. Um, my charge to the two pastors in my presence, you have a few weeks to meditate on this profound insight about the institution of the Lord's Supper before we take it again. I'm sure it's going to be awesome next time. <laughs> yeah. Look more into it, I guess. Um, and yeah, and then as Charlie said earlier, like the the blood of the covenant, like that that's really the climax of this mm. whole, I mean, that's the real connection, right? Because you would have been looking back, I thought that was a good point, Charlie, looking back at and telling the story of, you know, the blood being put on the house and being passed over. And then he says like, this cup is my blood of the new, of the new covenant, right? And it's all of a sudden this poosh, new explosion of meaning uh, into who Jesus is and what he has come uh, to do. And we could then start getting into propitiation and expiation, but we're not going to get into that, uh, get into that now. So yeah, a lot of great connections here um, with the Passover meal. When he says uh, in, um, in verses 23 to 25 about, we can just read it here. He took a cup when he had given thanks and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Well, recall uh, Mark 10, 38, where he said uh, to the disciples, you know, when they're asking to sit at the right hand and one at the left, he said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism uh, with which I am baptized? And then, so recall that in Mark 10, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And then just a few verses later in Mark 14, in verse uh, 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so you have this cup image in Mark 10. Can you, can you drink from the cup that I drink with? And he does say, um, the cup that I drink with, you will drink. Right in Mark 10. And then he communicates the cup as this cup of blessing, but then he again refers to it as, you know, the cup as a cup of suffering, which he prays that the Lord, that the Father might take from him. So there is this sort of, you can't drink. Can you drink of it? You will drink. Here's the cup. Drink of it. But God, spare me of the cup, kind of, and you have all this, this imagery there. So what does this maybe tell us about Number one, maybe the uniqueness of Christ's suffering, but then for those who do follow Christ and who drink the blood of the covenant, who participate in this meal with him and proclaim to follow him, what does that maybe tell us about our suffering, right, as we're joined to him? So what can we learn here about Christ's suffering and what can we maybe learn here about our suffering? Wow, that's a lot there in that question. I think we have to recognize that Jesus is God and Jesus is man and so he is he knows what he has come to do but he also knows the fullness ahead of time of what he's going to experience at the cross 
And so I think the reason that Jesus is sweating drops of blood before he ever gets to the cross is he knows what this wrath experience of God and is going to be. So because he is because he's God, he knows the future. He knows, oh, this is going to be horrific. And and yet out of in, as a man and as as one who loves the Father and as a human that he's he's honestly praying, Lord, is there another way? And you just see the the dripping humanity of mm-hmm. wrestling with God of I want to align my will to yours, but this is going to be horrific. Is is there another way? I and and he realizes that there's not, and so he's saying, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. And it's really part of his perfection in her in his humanity as he's wrestling through this, you know, this suffering. And and so the cup is really the imagery of of both of suffering and of wrath. And drinking the cup of wrath in in the Old Testament is really a a sign of judgment on the enemies. And Jesus is is going to be the enemy. He's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's going to drink it down to the dregs for us. And we would be, he would become the enemy of God because we were his enemies. And he became the enemy for us and drinks the fullness of the cup of God's wrath. And it is a cup of suffering. And so for us, as we, you know, as we do partake of these elements, we're, we always are reminded that we follow in his footsteps also in his suffering, but then also in his resurrection. And so we can't get the order mixed up. We're going we're gonna to suffer in this life, and yet we're going to be raised, and we're going to share in his glory. Um, but it, there is a cost that's involved, mm-hmm. and we all got more than we bargained for. When we, when we decided we were going to follow Jesus, none of us really thought, we were, none of us knew what we were really getting into. And... Um, but it's good. It's just it would we as Jim Elliot says. You know, you bargain for a cross. You know, we got more than we bargained for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's a cup of. I think we talked about this back in Mark chapter ten. How in the Old Testament the cup uh, is a cup of suffering and wrath and judgment, but it's also can be a cup of blessing. Uh, there's the Old Testament images for both, and I think good one point, thing that we see point. here is uh, you don't get one without the other. Ah, that's good. Um, mm. You don't get one without the other. And um, something that there's a, I grew up, um, some people who grew up in this area will will know this name. Um, uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I uh, took uh, classes at Junri Taekwondo. Uh, and Junri was uh, popular because nobody bothers yeah, me. Nah, nobody bothers me either. You know, his two nobody kids. Nobody comer- bothers me. <laughs> See, you know the commercial. Nobody bothers um, me either. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, you you can see uh, Junri's influence still in the area uh, in a couple ways. And like the logos that people have, you can tell are very similar. If you actually look, like go to their website or something, you'll see that they still use the same student creed or the same whatever. So you can see his influence and his Proteges are still all over the area, but Jun Ri, the name isn't really around. He passed away a year or two ago and had his funeral actually at McLean Bible Church. I was going to try and go, um, but uh, didn't make it. Um, But one of the things we would say, and I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but there was one that always stuck with me, was we had our four daily affirmations. And one of them was, 
how do we lead? And you'd always respond. So the person asking you, how do we lead? And your response would be, by example. And then it was either sir or ma'am, right? So it was this big emphasis in his school on leading by example. And that has just always stuck with me when you look at Christ, because he never asks us to do something that he wasn't first willing to do himself. You know, and so this um, taking, you know, drinking a cup of suffering, he doesn't ask us to do that without drinking it first. And so I think that is something that we, you know, can take from here uh, is, yes, there is a cup of suffering. And as he says in Mark 10, like, are you ready for this? Sort of is almost the question. Are you ready for this? Because I'm going to drink a cup, cup of suffering. Can you drink that? Because you will. Uh, you will. Um, and then. We see the reality of that here in, in Mark 14, but then it's tied to that of um, there is a cup of blessing, but it doesn't come without this cup of suffering. And uh, when we come to the table, I think there's a reassurance then and a hope. There's a there's a reassurance that like, yes, I may be suffering, but this doesn't mean this isn't something unique or strange that I'm suffering uh, because Jesus did too. And I was told to expect that if I'm going to drink this cup. Um, but then there's also the cup of blessing of I have this hope and this expectation, uh, you know, that Christ will come again, make all things new, that I, I am safe and secure in him. And so there's, I don't know, there's there's both um, there. So Howard, do you have any, anything you want to add to that? No? Very good. Uh, Jesus goes to trial here next. Um in the courts and he's with the high priest and, you know, there's these accusations of blasphemy, but then sort of the high priest just gets kind of right to the, right to the point, you know, it's kind of like, I'm done with the testimony. Um, and so around verse, uh, um, 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is it exactly that Jesus is saying about himself in light of um, Old Testament context? So this is really one of the most amazing statements about Jesus. Um, you know, does Jesus claim to be the Messiah? You know, and he's asked here, um, are you are you the Christ? And are you the, and the word Christ is, are you the anointed one? And in the Hebrew, uh, you know, Mashiach, Messiah, um, their, their expectation is this anointed one is going to come. I had an interesting conversation this week with a rabbi, actually, that uh, ended up buying a conversion van from my from my mom, and we ended up spending a lot of time together. But I was asking him, "Do you believe that the Messiah uh, will be God?" And he emphatically said, "No, the Messiah will not be God. He is will be a descendant of David and." you know, come from David, but he's an anointed one. And my reply to him was, well, what about Isaiah 9, 6, where he's called El Gabor, he's called the mighty God, everlasting father, um, you know, prince of peace, but 
particularly the mighty God aspect. And then also just the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And I didn't refer to this passage, which would have been nice, but it, but the Daniel 7, there is this reference, uh, kind of obscure reference in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, of which I think a lot of the Gospel of Mark is kind of pointing to is that the Gospel of Mark, the bookends of the book, it begins with he's called the Son of God, and it ends with the centurion saying, truly this was the Son of God. But everywhere in between, and Chris Marcantonio helped point this out to me, so Chris, shout out to you, that he's referred to as Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, and suffering, and, and the key verse, Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But here the reference to Son of Man is a is a reference back to Daniel 7 and 13 and 14, which talks about this one who's going to come to the Ancient of Days and be presented before him, one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so here we see that Messiah is going to be God. It is one who's given a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom, and people are bowing before him and serving him. And so Jesus is making a clear uh, statement that Daniel 7 is me, and certainly the high priest gets it. This is blasphemy. Let's Mm -hmm. kill him because he's claiming to be God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's all spot on. And, uh, you know... Jesus clearly is saying this about himself, and yeah, the high priest clearly gets it. Uh, his response almost affirms, um, well, his, his his response does confirm everything that that Jesus is saying about himself in, in the sense of this is astounding and to him blasphemous because it's so serious. Um, uh, and so tearing his robes, robes and all of that. Uh, yeah, we if we had more time, we would ask Charlie more about the conversation with uh, the rabbi because that's mm-hmm. something I want to know uh, more about. But uh, just for time's sake, let's move on. And you know, we're kind of moving quickly here through this passion narrative. But uh, the last thing that we want to take a look at is Peter, right? And so you, it's if this was a, um, I'm I'm now wondering how will the chosen portray this scene someday in season five, whenever it gets to this. But <laughs> at, while all of this is happening, Peter is on his own trial. Right, so while 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 Jesus is on trial, Peter is on his own trial, and it's kind of one of these sandwich things ish because mm-hmm. f- fifty four has Peter following at a distance, and then you have Jesus's trial, and then it concludes with Peter's trial happening at the same time in the courts where he's denying Jesus, and so we have this contrast of the one time you know Jesus has been sort of downplaying maybe um, you know claiming this title for himself. Uh, in his ministry. He hasn't really been actively claiming the title for himself. And now the time has come for him to claim it. And Peter has been trying to say, you know, he's going to follow him. He's been saying that he's the Christ or, you know, trying to declare who he is. And now the time comes for the Messiah to finally say like, yes, I am. Right. And the time comes for Peter to follow and he, he shrinks back. So, you know, Jesus comes up and finally kind of claims the title. And Peter, who has been saying he would, saying this is who he is, saying he would follow him, now pulls back. Uh, and I think that's the the contrast mm-hmm. we see 
uh, between the two. Uh, so just kind of last reflection question then for us is, you know, just kind of like we talked about with Judas earlier is how do we avoid doing what Peter did? How do we avoid turning into Peter? Um, <laughs> this is a hard question. Yeah. All right, Howard, this is another Don't hard shrink one. back. Don't shrink back from the question. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's another hard one. Uh, I think when I thought about this uh, question, I, I think I could come up with a list of like truths that I can try to prepare myself with. Mm-hmm. I honestly feel like it's one of those things that I don't know myself that well enough to give you a definitive answer until I'm put into a situation mm-hmm. like that, Yeah, to be honest. Um, and I think if we're honest, we, we do fall into, there's been, I can think of a couple of opportunities in my life where somebody has really just served me up with a question to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I can remember when I was way back in my, a summer I spent in Brooklyn, like as a missionary on a skateboard. And I was trying to witness these kids. And this guy asked me one day, why are you so happy? I mean, if there was ever an opportunity for me to tell him about Jesus. And I just completely swung and missed and gave some stupid answer. And I still remember to this day, like, you totally blew it. I remember another time as a pastor, I remember one time I was going to somebody's house and this lady got she was bringing a horse and a horse trailer and she got the, 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 she was stuck on a hill cause it started to snow and lo and behold, this guy comes along and he has a dually truck and I stopped him with traffic and somehow connected these two and got this guy to pull her out and pull her up the hill and save her horses. And, and she just said something like, you are like, you were an answer to prayer to me or something. And, or some, it was some answer, it was something like, it was just the, the most perfect opportunity to say something about God's goodness and, and I just completely blew it, you know? So I could think of like lots of times where I've just, and I remember one time with my great grandmother, this was on Kim's side, and she wanted to know about my, called a ministry in my profession of faith and I was engaged my father-in-law's right there and he's not a believer and I just completely choked and I did not say anything so I mean I there's three instances in my life where clearly like there was someone served into my court to say something and I just out of fear or for some stupid reason I just completely missed it. So I think maybe part of it is to start where Peter didn't start, where Peter says, you know, even though all fall away, I'll never deny you. Mm -hmm. And he's just adamant that he is ready. Even if I must die for you, I will not deny you. You know, he's more, and I think maybe a more humble position to start would be recognized. You know what? I have the potential to deny him every day. Mm -hmm. One. One thought, uh, as you're talking about that, Charlie, is um, uh, I think Peter, even I think it was Peter himself who said it. So back in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, um, well, I guess before that in verse 27, where it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but 
not with God, for all mm. things are possible with God. And then Peter answers in verse 28 with, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. In that moment where my association with Jesus is highlighted and questioned and in Peter's case interrogated, if if I know and I really believe that I have left everything to follow Jesus in that moment, what do I have left to lose? Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm. pro- probably a prayer I need to have every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Peter, too, is another, um, he's a good lesson in, you know, in, in zeal when we think about zeal and this passionate fire, uh, for the Lord. And, you know, fortunately, you know, uh, uh, Jesus will restore him. And, um, I think that really probably served Peter well. And I think he probably gained a lot of wisdom from this moment of falling so hard after having so much zeal, uh, and then being restored. Uh, hopefully that, balanced him out, you know, but, um, I think then when we think about the Christian life today, you know, we can often look at zeal and and zeal in the lives of other believers or even zeal in our own life and think that's good. And yet there are some cautions, you know, when you even think about, uh, about the seed that might grow quickly for a time, but then it has no roots. And so it Mm -hmm. quickly falls away. And I can even think of, you know, in my life, you know, became a Christian as, you know, when I was 23, um, and got a lot of zeal very quickly. And if it wasn't for like older, wiser believers in my life, like helping me through the times when my expectations came crashing down or whatever, like I probably would have fallen away too. Like if I hadn't had that, like helping me temper zeal with wisdom and kind of like real life expectation. And I can even think of other people who converted around the same time as me who were very passionate, who were come to the service every week, who would get very emotional in the service every week, who were very into it, who now like within four years were, were gone, right? We're no mm-hmm. longer believers because like came quickly, burned brightly, and then left just as quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's just a, maybe a, a practical wisdom here of for believers and, and then even in the church, like, you know, we want to be on fire for the Lord and have, have zeal for the Lord, but tempering that with, yeah, and I think Presbyterians would go maybe too far on the tempering here uh, sometimes. <laughs> but you know, so we so we need to push zeal more. But I think just being honest about about that, um, and it may be it just it's another plug for not just community in general, but community where new believers, zealous believers, will be around those who have been been through the ringer mm-hmm. a time or two yeah, and can kind of help help um, them grow and mature and and all of that. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for being here um, this morning. Thanks for contributing to this. We have one chapter left. Well, a chapter and a half. Um, and it depends on how much you take from chapter 16. Um, but we will finish up next week with chapter 15 and 16. And uh, that'll be it for this year. So, Howard, I think this is your last time. It is. Uh, so thank you for being here with us all these many weeks. Next week, we'll have Tammy and Becca back, who were our first guests and who will be our last guests. And we're looking forward to recording that. So thanks, everybody, for listening. 
Take care, and we'll be back next week for our last trip through Mark. All right, take care.